1: This is SOG cast number eight. And I want to thank you for joining us today. My name is John Strykermeyer. I am your host, courtesy of Jocko Willink Productions. And today we're going to be focusing on uh, one of the epic stories that occurred during the eight-year secret war in Vietnam fought by the men of SOG, the Special Forces Green Berets and their indigenous troops. And on this mission... We had 136 men, 16 Green Berets, 120 indigenous troops that were assigned into deep into Laos to take pressure off of a CIA operation that was further west that was also under uh, great stress by the NVA. And the team was inserted with Marine Corps helicopters, four helicopters, CH-53s, that took them into the target area. And after insertion, We'll talk a little bit more about that, but there is one scene on the first night or the morning of the second day where the command post, where Captain Gene McCarley, who was the officer in charge of the operation, was with his senior intelligence officers, some indigenous troops, and his medic, Gary Mike Rose. And what happened while they were there, an RPG, a rifle-propelled grenade, was launched into that site and we're reading from *Saw Chronicles, Volume 1. And the rocket exploded. Thus, when the shrapnel exploded, those of us who were injured didn't get the full impact because the round had gone past the men but hit trees, and then the shrapnel exploded backwards, but still with deadly force. And 45 years later, after that rocket explosion, Rose had one lasting mental image from it. It's funny. I can't remember much about it except that all of a sudden I was flying through the air. At some point, while airborne, I looked up and saw a blue sky. It was beautiful. And then I landed. Later, Captain Gene McCarley told us, Rose showed us what he was made of that day. He immediately started to go to work on the wounded because everyone in the CP, the command post at that time, had varying degrees of wounds. In fact, Rose had a serious foot injury. Somehow the shrapnel had shredded his jungle boot and cut open his foot. Somehow with that shrapnel, he barely went down and wrapped it around his feet, his foot, I mean, I'm sorry, then he uses CAR-15 as a crutch, and he began treating our wounded. So that's Captain Gene McCarley uh, on that mission on that day, and we'll be talking more about the mission. But today we are honored to have with us Gary Michael Rose, who was the only medic on that mission, that historic mission. Mike, welcome to the show, sir. Well, thank you. <laughs> it's a real and pleasure. You, and, and you are again. <laughs> <laughs> my name is yeah. Jose. <laughs> but, it's nice uh, to be here, John. Uh, oh, it's, my, it's our pleasure, and thank you for taking the time. And um, before we officially began recording, you were talking a little bit about how th- that moment in time, you are lucky because— I don't want to. You you described it better than I did. You're explaining how that round went off. It picked you up and threw you through the air, and you were glad to hit your foot instead of your head. Well, I, when, obviously, if you you if
2: I'm looking up and all I'm seeing is blue sky, it looks like I'm upside down. I, I mean, just I, and I can't tell you what the configuration of my body was at that point. But that's all I could remember. It's it's a break in the trees of the canopy, and and I could see the blue sky. And I did hear the s- like a, a like s- that sound when you put a steak on a barbecue. Yes, that was the sound of that hot piece of metal going through my foot. It was your foot at that time sizzling. And then later on, I got to thinking about it. You know h- how you do with hindsight. You know it's great. You know f- twenty twenty, right? Yeah. I was just thinking, boy, I'm glad. Actually, I was blown up that way. Set a head up. Because that could have been my head. <laughs> Although it might have knocked some sense into me.
1: I don't know. Indeed. <laughs> so um, this mission, because of the size of it, it was also unique in that when the helicopters first went in, they took uh, relatively heavy gunfire. And a lot of SOG missions, if a helicopter is going in and they took gunfire, they are obviously compromised. But on this mission... Your men continued on, and on your helicopter. When you I, were you on the last one that went in? Uh, no, I was with the, I was with on I, with Gene. Jean.
2: With Jean. I remember standing. Uh, our um, our CCC sergeant major was standing next to me. He he was going in with the ride. I guess, um, you know, it it sounds funny, and I'll tell you this. it, it it's kind of now that I think back. I didn't think it probably at the time, but now that I think it's kind of comforting that that here's a guy that's willing to get on a helicopter to go in there with you, not to stay, but just to to ride in and then try to get out. And I can tell you, we were taking rounds from the time almost we crossed the border because when you hear rounds hitting those CH-53, it sounds like popcorn popping to me. Is that right? Yeah. In (laughs) fact, uh, if you've seen the movie... uh, Saving Private Ryan? Sure. And when they first going in, and the rounds hitting the hulls of those uh And the Higgins, Higgins boats? boats? Yeah. It's about, and I think Higgins boats and helicopters were probably more or less made out of somewhat the same material. I think they were aluminum or whatever. And um, they, I might be wrong on that, but boy, it sure sounded the same. But um, it's comforting to know that, you know, especially when we when the ship I was on, when we landed, we had I had to step over a couple mountain yards. So technically there were a hundred and twenty going in. Going in. But when we when the helicopters left, they left with at least two mountain
1: yards that I know of. They were now wounded. they were
2: injured but they they didn't pass away thank right. God for that.
1: Yeah. So they're wounded on the insertion, which in and well, of they were itself
2: before we even hit the ground.
1: Yeah. Wow.
2: So it was a hot LZ going in, and, uh, and, I, and I think the reason that, that, unlike most missions that would be considered compromise, and now you got to understand, this is, this is a 74-year-old person thinking about something that happened 51 years ago. <laughs> most likely, that mission was to pull NBA troops off of that CIA operation, and they wanted us on the ground, period. Indeed. I mean, it was it was uh, it it short of being blown out of the sky, I guess we were going in.
1: Yeah, and although that term wasn't used at the time, indeed now, uh, fifty-one years in retrospect, that was essentially could be called a suicide mission, going in that heavily, and that with that target area. Well, <laughs> some people said know, it. Um, yeah.
2: You you. Right, rode a few helicopters in Vietnam, and you can you, you know how relatively flimsy they are. Indeed. <laughs> uh, most previously, I was riding in Hueys. Yeah. And this was a big helicopter. It's uh in.
1: It's the biggest in the uh, our helicopters of uh, all of our air units had at that time.
2: Well, the reason they got picked was because they had the range.
1: Sure. We so deep in the layoffs, and the
2: the and and that was also true. Why we were using Marine Corps Cobras instead of Army Cobras? Because my understanding now, you have to understand that I, I want to make this perfectly clear. Sure. I would say ninety eight percent of what I know about Operation Tailwind, I have learned since nineteen ninety eight, which was almost thirty years later. Indeed. Being told by reading witness statements and. Uh, Talking to people that, aviators and everything else, so...
1: Because um, you were busy on the ground, patching up your you troops.
2: Know, people that were, weren't you concerned about what's going on around you? And I'd say, well, your folk, you know, you've got your training.
1: As a medic.
2: You have to understand something. By the time I got to Vietnam, I had been in the Army since I was 19, and I'm now 22, almost 23. Yeah. And so... You are, uh, you've got several years of training, plus I'd served a year in Thailand, uh, as a medic in the, uh, 46 Special Forces Company, working with Thai National Police and the Thai Army. So I, I learned a lot of things in that year. So when I got to Vietnam, I was not combat experience, but I had a lot of, you know, Going in on helicopters, I had other things working in Thailand. So uh, you you're well trained, and I and I and I will tell you the army. I don't think, given the period of the time in history, I don't think the army could have trained me any better than it did. First off, I don't think the the technology that we had, they could have trained me any better. Right, and um, and I think you. Um, you you going in focused on what you're responsible for. My task was basically, you know, I'm along for the ride until somebody gets hurt.
1: <laughs> and when and, they get hurt, you kick in the gear.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then you focus. But that doesn't mean you're ignoring what's going on around you, because obviously I'm not. Right. But I'm not concerned about that machine gun fire or that those rifles fire or the mortars coming in. That's that's not my concern. That's what those other guys, the other fifteen guys, were concerned with, and the other
1: indigenous troops. Yeah.
2: Well, you're Kuch, focused on tourniquets. The other 119, because <laughs> the one one Montagnard was with me, and that was Cooch, and got. Oh, that's up. right. Yes. I, and, wish, I wish we could find him.
1: Yeah, that, that little guy. And and just for a side note, Cooch was your Montagnard who you were training to be a medic. He was a medic. He'd been a, he'd
2: been a medic, and and. Uh, the main thing Crooch did was he watched my back.
1: All the time you're on the ground in Laos. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
2: And he watched my back on the previous operation I was on. So Iota, you know, but he also carried medical supplies. He also helped with the wounded. You know, it, it wasn't just me helping with the wounded, right? Of course. When we would, I would pull in some people from the line to help carry the wounded and then change them out periodically because you, I mean, if you've got some guy strapped to a bamboo pool with, uh, repelling ropes and, uh, a poncho and they look like one, you know, like have you ever seen those pictures in the, in the distance where you see some guy <laughs> carrying two guys carrying a Yeah. Figure? Yeah. That's basically what it looked like. And if you ever try, you're carrying dead weight. Now mountain yard, probably most of them weighed probably what somewhere between 100 and 150 pounds but that's dead weight and if you're trying to go through that jungle in laos i'm going to tell you um, i'm not so sure you could drive through there with a bulldozer
1: well and also um within the next day you had at least two people that were two of the indigenous troops that were killed or died from the wounds and that you tried to carry them for another day, then they finally had to make a very difficult decision. Yeah. Uh,
2: Well, there's, we left, we had three killed and I'm the one who made the decision who gave the order to leave them. Yeah. And I will tell you that there isn't a day go by for the last 50 years that I know everybody's told me, consciously i know but there's something in the back of my head that what i did that day were actually two different days was wrong because we left them they were dead i don't know if they were buddhists i don't know if they're catholic because mountain yards were either catholic or Buddhist. right so they didn't come home to their their families they didn't get their ritual or religious i should say burial uh their bones are probably scattered to the, th- the four winds. Um, they'll never probably be found. Uh, they, they don't have a final resting place. And I don't know their names. I, 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 you know, know very little about them, except that I'm the one who, that'll not gave the order that said they're just not coming home.
1: Right, and you had to do that in order to keep those alive to be able to move more proficiently in that jungle, triple canopy on top well, of it. Well, we were
2: struggling to carry the wounded. Right. I mean, uh, have you? You know, you can't. You can't carry. A, we didn't have litters, so we right. improvised with the pulp bamboo. Sure. And uh, when you're carrying a, basically resting, uh, seventy-five pounds on one shoulder plus your rucksack and your weapon and everything else. And if you've ever gone to walk through that part of the world, even if you were uh, stripped down with nothing, it's extremely difficult to move through that type of terrain.
1: Yeah, and added to that difficulty was Captain McCarley at that time decided specifically that they would move at night. And, they, and that meant um, they had air cover, and so they had, so after that round went off, everybody, you patched people up to the point, people were on stretchers, and once you said everybody's up and running, then they moved at night. And well, the, that the, was...
2: The mountain yard antenna was the worst. He he was split from his hip. Wow. All right down to his femur, to his knee, on, on the, I mean, I'm trying to think, <laughs> the right leg. Yeah. And... Uh, The thing that saved his life was, fortunately for him, considering that really devastating wound, that it did not cut into the femoral artery. Oh, yeah. But he still lost a lot of blood. Sure. But, um, and one of the things that they talk about, people think I did it deliberately, but I didn't. It was (laughs) mother nature. Uh, Flies got into the wound. And
1: uh, as a result,
2: uh, all the badly wounded all had uh, maggots uh, in their wounds. I mean, lots.
1: so we literally them. had maggots coming to the aid of a Green Beret medic to help those wounded.
2: Right. Because they were eating the dead flesh, which yeah. meant they didn't get infection. Yes. And, uh, and who would have thought of that? I, <laughs> not me. No. And uh, I mean, uh in fact, uh, when we got the one guy back to uh, the 74th of Back, the surgeon opened up the bandages and looked down and said, and he just put the bandages back and says they're doing a better job than I could. No kidding. <laughs> and uh, Well, because they do, they get in there and they eat all the dead flesh. Sure. Fortunately, they weren't like a blowfly magnet that eats everything. Right. But these maggots were just eating the dead flesh, and they relatively kept the wound clean. Yeah. My biggest problem with them, though, was... Uh, I couldn't. I couldn't change the bandages after I bandaged them, and the reason for it is every time you, you know, in that type of environment, you you start pulling bandages off, you start pulling off stuff. Yeah. So uh, what interrupting I interrupting
1: the healing process going on.
2: Well, my no, what I was concerned about was uh, starting bleeding again once I got the Ooh, bleeding start. Right. So what I did was I just kept. As the bandages got soaked in blood, I just kept uh, um, putting more bandages on it, and then on night uh, or when I could, I got an IV in them to keep them hydrated. Right. Uh, and then uh, fortunately, they didn't have in, um, you know gut wounds, and we could feed them water to keep as much fluids in them as possible. And that was the other concern I had with my really badly wounded was that uh, uh, dehydration. Oh, yeah. Bud loss, plus you're sweating like
1: a... Yeah, in the jungle. <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> and they're moving. Uh,
2: and you can lose some water, I mean, you know, through sweat. So that was our my biggest concern, was keeping them hydrated and making sure they didn't start to bleed again. And uh, I kept them, I gave them enough, just enough morphine, not to kill the pain, but to... Because I got to believe, bouncing around like we were bouncing them, it had to hurt. I mean, oh, yeah. I mean, they had to be absolutely
1: miserable. I can't imagine. So, like, by the end of that first night and into the morning of the second day on the ground, by that time, nine of the 16 Green Berets had been wounded. And uh, at that point, you and Koch were working, how you say it, Coach? Cooch. Cooch, thank you. <laughs> Cooch. You and Cooch had worked tirelessly on the wounds all night as they moved through the jungle in the dark. But I just wanted to have a, a quick moment because you and I talked earlier off camera. It was one of those little moments in time. The first day where you had been on the ground for maybe an hour, they came to a, a, a cachet, an enemy cachet supply site, and it would turned out to be some kind of a way station for the North Vietnamese Army. And while they were in it, what was, it? What was the exact configuration of that?
2: Uh, we think it was probably like a core logistics center. It had Class A phones. By that, if you don't know what a Class A phone is, it's like the thing that's in your home. Yes. Uh, it had some of the uh, areas had some wooden sidewalks. Uh, they were structures that weren't, I mean, by our standards, I guess they would be considered temporary, but they were more, s- uh, the structures were more secure or sturdy than a simple, you know build it in a half an hour, kind of. And
1: so here, here you had one of these moments in time where one of those phones rang. Yes. And Captain Gene McCarley, got, it's in the book, but I never knew it was Gene. And so what happened when the phone rang? Well,
2: I'm standing there because I heard him say this. And he said, uh, the phone rang. He picks it up. And he says, Captain Jean McCarley's 5th Special Forces Group, how may I help you? <laughs> and, I, and I'm going, oh, Can I say, I can't. You can,
1: you can. Yes, this is Jocko's world.
2: (laughs) I said, oh, shit. Why don't we just carry up, you know, break out the colors, guys. (laughs) You know, unsheat the colors, you know. It's like, I mean, but you know, you you know, we go in sterile and all that, but it's like, it's like making a movie. And not identifying the, uh, the, uh, the actor who's playing a particular character. Indeed. You know, that's Matt Damon and, or uh, Cary Grant or sure. John Wayne. You know who it is.
1: Because that was part of the secret war was our government had entered an agreement somewhere, a treaty or something, with the North Vietnamese. They said, we will not have combat troops in Laos. We said, we won't. We pulled them all out. And the NVA, being the honorable communist they are, added more. And so there was always that sequel war. We were there. They didn't acknowledge that they were there, but we knew they were, and that was part of the, uh, the war. So here's the phone. He answers it.
2: <laughs> and I, I wanted to spell something else that yeah. has come up. Is there were no civilians in that area. Hmm. There were you you. There was no evidence of farming. There was no evidence of any kind of. Uh, civil action at all in that area
1: that's why we'll talk about that later on as to why uh, that issue became essential later like 30 years later
2: yeah i mean it was you're it it was a it was a combat area unbeknownst to the most of the world but it was it was it was not a safe place to be and i can tell you farmers are not going to be uh Rate trying to raise rice or pigs or chickens or whatever if you're dropping bombs and mortars and whatever else on them, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's yeah, because c- c- you know, you're it isn't worth the effort. So, what you're going to do is you, you move off to what you consider a safer area, or and so I can tell you, as a matter of fact, you I saw an absolutely zero evidence of civilization other than that uh, logistics center that the North Vietnamese had built and uh, that area also had uh, must have been a way station for troops heading south too because there was there was actually a post office there. No kidding with uh, we actually got mail first class mail I mean we're talking sure letters home with a stamp.
1: And this is the first command post that you hit, and you take the intelligence. And then, when you all moved out, the debt and the engineers set everything up to blow it up, destroy it, add over nine tons of rice and weapons.
2: Yeah, and then also, we uh, definitely identified the area. And I understand that the Air Force came in and just blew the daylight.
1: They They followed your smoke from where they Yeah, they came
2: in and I understand I don't know what they hit it with, but they they worked that area and I understand there was. I don't know what the length of time, but there were secondary and tertiary explosions going on. So
1: Oh yeah. For several hours. Yeah. There which is that shows you how deep the supply routes were and the lines were there that that was a major impact on day 1.
2: And so I'm sure we irritated somebody
3: <laughs> and that's
2: what I think they started pulling troops off of uh, the CIA operation was the northwest of Chavano and we were south of Chavano. Right. And I think they started pu- pulling troops off of that operation because now this is Mike Rose's supposition. Indeed. I mean, I can't prove this.
1: Sergeant Rose at the time.
2: Yeah, Sergeant Rose. <laughs> well, actually, it's an old man Rose thinking back. We, we probably had... Created a thought process in the NVA that this may have been a major U.S. incursion into Laos, which it wasn't. But with uh, when, if you cr- you know if a small group creates a lot of havoc, oh yeah, and you're and you're in that environment, you probably you don't have the satellites, you don't have all the
1: no. Back in those days, no satellites.
2: Yeah, you you you, you didn't have all the electronic
1: no night vision. None of that stuff.
2: Nothing like that. No. uh, Or at least they didn't. So they're, they're probably wondering who's in there doing what. And then with McCarley moving, it's constantly. Because historically, we'd go in and we'd create a static position to draw them.
1: Right. So from a historic perspective, they had done three slam operations where Hatcher Force would go in, set up on the Ho Chi Minh Trail, and stay permanent. And then after a while, the NVA would hammer him. Gene's response we will move day and night. So they won't know exactly where you were. So they couldn't muster large forces, at least the first couple of days you're on the ground. But they kept coming at you.
2: Yeah, exactly. But they, they couldn't concentrate their troops because they weren't sure where we were because... Uh,
1: Hard to hit a moving target.
2: Our great commander, Gene McCarley, I mean, later Colonel McCarley, Lieutenant Colonel McCarley. Indeed. He, uh, the guy, as far as I'm concerned, Since April of 1775, he's probably within the top five or ten individuals that have ever commanded an infantry company in the United States military.
1: I second that notion. He was just heroic and leadership. When
2: you consider that, well, you know, if you consider the amount of wounded we had, we only had three KIAs, uh, and considering the damage we did, and our mission was a success... From what I learned thirty some years later, indeed, um, he he just was astoundingly great commander.
1: Absolutely, no question. And I want to get back to some more, one more personal point of lessons learned by you when you're on the ground. And again, we're just going back to the book. um, At one point, during an attack on B Company by an NVA force of more than forty enemy soldiers. The two most seriously wounded men that Rose was treating had both of their IV fluid bags shattered and destroyed during a hail of enemy gunfire. And quoting you in the book, I learned a lesson right there and then, said Rose. We kept the IVs flowing from low positions, allowing gravity to work, but not high enough for enemy gunfire to destroy them. My God. What a, what a lesson to learn! You know, I, who would have thought? <laughs> you know, you,
2: you you know you go through all your medical training. Yeah, and if you, which
1: is the best if in the anybody's world?
2: Anybody's either been in a hospital or, either as a patient or a visitor, and has seen somebody with an IV bag. They always got it on hanging on a hook. Yeah, like a foot or two feet above their head at least, right? At least because you and the reason you want gravity to do it is because you don't want to be forcing fluids creating pressure in your system unnecessarily. Right. And uh, so I will, well, there were a couple times on the IV I sat on one or two to force... Sorry, but... <laughs> had to force the fluids forward. Yeah, I can see my instructors at Special Forces Medical <laughs> Training just going ape when they saw what I was doing. And then the other thing I was doing that pro- was a big no-no was I knew I had a limited amount of morphine. And we had the morphine syrettes. I, uh, it looked like a, a small tube of toothpaste with a long needle.
1: Yeah, or like today's small super glue. They come in those little yeah. tubes with a little...
2: Yeah, and, and a very sharp needle, very thin. Yes. Well, I would probably use one thread on three people and no alcohol swabs. Oh. Because those are gone within the first day, trust me. Yes. I mean, at that <laughs> point in time, you're not concerned with, uh, we'll deal with infection later kind of deal. You know, you, you, hope, you hope somebody, I, I mean, this is all hindsight now. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking... Well, maybe, a, maybe it's subconscious. I was hoping that none of these guys had, had some kind of <laughs> catastrophic disease, you know. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> yes. they did, all of them had it. But you, you can't, you can't. We couldn't get resupplied. My God, every time they tried to get a helicopter in, they, they were shooting them down.
1: Well, another big factor too was you wanted to get a medevac in to take out the wounded, but you couldn't because even on day two, the uh, tactical air was even uh, hampered by bad weather. So you couldn't get tack air for a while, as well as when you're moving on the ground and we couldn't get the medevacs out. That was one more um, sidebar you all had to deal with. So you had to continue to move, continue to take care of your wounded, and the numbers grew amongst the wounded because of the ongoing combat as they moved, even at night.
2: True, and I, and I can tell you to the, the Moxie of, uh, of the guys that were with us, both the Americans and the um, mountain yards. Uh, a lot of them had wounds or injuries that, at that point, um, that if you were here in Huntsville, you'd be calling nine one one or at least taking them to the emergency room. Right. But you know, you'd look at it and if it, uh, okay, you're not bleeding too bad.
1: You're not going to die today.
2: If it, you know, <laughs> you're not going <laughs> to die today. You know, if it if you could get the fragment out or whatever it was, or put you put a bandage on it, pat them on the butt, give them their rifle, and put them back on the line. Because we, you know, you we were it was getting desperate as each day come. Yeah. And the and the and the fourth day had really become beyond desperate.
1: Well, even let's get back to the third day for a second, because even there they finally did try to get a medevac in. And that on on um, that was the CH-53 again. The Marine Corps CH-53 Delta came in to pick up the wounded. The pilot was Bill Beardall, and they came in. Uh, our Green Beret medic, Doc Paget, John Doc Paget was on that helicopter with Sergeant John Brown, and as the helicopter began to descend into the LZ, you and a couple other people had the most seriously wounded that lieutenant. Was with you and a helicopter. You were just beginning to reach up to hand the lieutenant over to Doc Paget when uh, the tail rotor struck a tree. And as you were lifting the patient up towards Doc, and the chopper suddenly lifted up. Suddenly, it was lifting up like it took off. Well, and you're and you're on the receiving end of that.
2: After discussing that years later, decades later. Yeah, I remember a. I guess it was a palm—not uh, a palm tree, but either well, some kind of tree or bamboo. You know, probably about maybe six inches in diameter at the base. Yeah. And it was in this middle of what looked like an old bomb crater, I think. It because we didn't clear it, and we were in a clearing of sorts.
1: Yeah, you're just trying to find a clear spot to get the chopper and to lift out yeah. the wounded.
2: And I, the guys had chopped most of that down with uh, with with knives. We didn't have axes, so they were trying to get that thing as low as possible and I think what ha- we think what happened is that particular helicopter we think took a hit of some sort and what happened was when it it, it wasn't a, a a critical hit per se right but what happened when it when it got hit the rotor swung in and hit that tree that we didn't get quite get slow enough yeah. Because the, the helicopters, I remember, we were in a, like a bowl like affair, as I, as I think about it. Sure, yeah. And I, he couldn't really set down flat, so the front end was going to be somewhat up up against the, the side of a bomb crater or whatever created that yeah. bowl like effect. And now this is what we think. And um, so when it got hit with something, and I'm not sure what it was— I think the pilot, for a minute, it jerked, and the thing slightly hit, and the rear rotor hit that that the very top of the uh, yeah, because and once you lose a rear rotor, uh, oh. uh, you, or damage it or bend it, my understanding is very difficult to control a helicopter. Sure. So he had no other choice but to lift off and get out of there. Right. Because the last thing we needed was a downed helicopter.
1: On and, top of everything else. And then we'd
2: have. God knows how many more injured with a crashed helicopter.
1: Well, then Doc Padgett also said that another round had gone through and it hit uh, the uh, one of the fuel uh, containers. And so they had fuel or some kind of liquid flowing inside of the helicopter on top of everything else. So that helicopter did get out of there, but you could not get the wounded out. No. So you had to go back to the jungle. That helicopter went out. It, it did an emergency landing.
2: We kept pushing like this. Yeah.
1: Well, Hoping I'm to get somebody out, Everybody can see me on a radio, but pushing up like yeah.
2: above our heads, right? Trying, and they were trying to pull them in, but um, that that particular helicopter was really not designed as a medevac per se. So you either had the side door or you had the tailgate, yeah. And we were trying to get them up through the tailgate, I
1: think. right? Oh yeah, no, that's true. That's what Doc said too. And here's a, don't forget, there's another sidebar to that. Was as they came in. This is according to the door gunner, uh, Larry Grow, and he had his M60 and a 51 caliber anti aircraft machine gun opened up on the helicopter, and he was able to. He said, "quote It was only 25 yards from it, and he opened up with it with his M60 and held it down on full automatic until the 51 was silenced." And that was also going on in addition to all the other activity at that moment in time.
2: Yeah, this, this was a this was a great idea that, from the very beginning, started going bad. And
1: I attempt and to I, do the I, right got, thing.
2: And I uh, and I give great credit to that that crew because they got that helicopter. Because the last thing, like I said, is that that had pancaked again with all if the and I did not know about the fuel until you just told me about that. Yeah. Uh, now that I remember reading the book, yeah. Now I okay, but anyway, you know, I'm getting old, guys. And don't,
1: You're not 29 anymore. 22 anymore. But you, you, you have
2: to give great credit for me because they had enough sense to know. And this is what I'm thinking: we don't, we did not need that to hit that that. Where we were, because right. we would have taken casualties on the ground. Plus the casualties in the, and then we would have struggled with trying to get them out of the helicopter. Plus, if he hadn't silenced that weapon, which uh, we would have had the um, the additional problem of that weapon going at us. Right. And uh, you know, our hands fulls are in, and you never know on a helicopter crash. You know, pe- everybody could get killed, or everybody can walk away from it, or something in between. But my biggest fear now that I think about the fuel issue is on that thing. If it had exploded in that bowl, it would oh. have taken... I mean, that mission would have been over then. Right then. So him, the pilot especially, the crew, got that up and got it away. And I don't know how far they got before they crashed, but...
1: I forget the exact but they got far enough away so that the enemy wasn't firing when they did an emergency landing. And then another copter came in, lifted him out on the ladder. And then Doc led the people up the ladder, and then the helicopter took off. And there's that iconic photo of the CH-53 Delta flying east with Doc and the other uh, members of that helicopter crew that went down on it, and he and Brown were on that ladder.
2: Yeah, and I mean, it's just... Amazing. It's just amazing, and and the attempt that Doc Pageant and Doc Brown coming in to make that attempt like that was... Uh, Probably, if you if they had sat down and really thought about it, yeah, <laughs> the thought probably would have crossed their mind. This is probably not a good idea. I mean,
1: because you guys have been drawing intense fire. By that time, this is day three now, and yeah, you've been on then, the ground.
2: They Pretty much, they probably probably didn't know. They didn't really know exactly where we were till day four. But by then, they pretty much knew the general area we were in.
1: Right. And uh, so the mission had been planned to go for, what, five or seven days? But on day four, in the morning, the very fir- first briefing in Da Nang, which is before anybody on the ground knew this, the people that were briefing was that the weather was getting closing in and would make it impossible for TAC Air to support Operation Tailwind. Also, the NVA were closing in. And so in that morning... Everything changed. Um, But also, you also had another intelligence coup during that morning. They hit another command post, get the intelligence. There's firefights along the way. Just an amazing day. And you, meanwhile, are attending to the increasing number of wounded. You and Cooch are moving on, taking care of your men. And this is day four. And um, my God.
2: I I, want to say something else. Please. If we had come across, I know this for a fact, if we had come across NDA wounded, one, we would not have heard them. Right. And two, with being as conservative as I would have been, I would have, if they were still alive, I, I would have tried to do something to keep them going long enough for their own people to pick them up. Right. And because... Uh, I guess my attitude was that once they're down... Yeah. They're down. And, you know... And... They... They they probably wanted to be home just as much as the rest of us wanted to be home.
1: That's the difference between our Army Green Berets and the Communists. Because we had many situations where we had wounded personnel and they would just come along and summarily execute them.
2: Well, on my first mission, uh, the in June of that year I the most severely wounded person I had was an NBA
4: is that right
2: yeah I did everything to uh, save his life uh, I left him with he passed away uh, I had put an IV in him uh, I had given him morphine and I'd had uh,
1: the serretin in the collar?
2: In the collar. Yeah. I wrote a note in English told them what I'd done and left them with them.
1: Yeah, because in the serretin, you do that in the collar so that anybody picks them up knows that they've had morphine because yeah. that would impact the triaging and their treatment yeah, for their exactly. wounds.
2: And you don't want to give them more morphine than necessary. Right. I mean, you don't want to make an addict out of them, but you can kill people with overdosing them with morphine. Well, it's a drug. It's, it's you know...
1: Well, how many times have you heard about people that were gut shot and they're on morphine and they're going, oh, look at my, look at my guts hanging out. We've heard stories like that. It's just amazing. People never think about that aspect of being wounded in combat.
2: My philosophy in combat, as far as in the field, I never would give anybody a morphine to kill the pain. I would give them enough morphine (laughs) so they could tolerate it.
3: Yeah.
2: And there's a reason for that. If they're, if they're. If they can tolerate the pain, then you can talk to them. You can reassure them. Uh, and you can also, if they're out because you gave them so much morphine, then any other sign or symptom that may pop up, you, it's probably not going to make an appearance that you'd like to, to do something else or or whatever you could within your poor abilities. So, and and the other thing too is... If you get a medevac out of the field back to, say, a 70, uh, a like the 74th of back.
1: Right, uh, sure. And, co- and play Q? Play cue. Uh
2: Play cue? Yeah. Uh, then they could, if the guy's conscious enough to be, even though he's a little groggy, you can talk to him. They can talk to him. Critical. And then they can get more reassurance, especially because if you're giving somebody morphine in the field, they're probably got a pretty serious injury, and you know, in the serious injuries in combat, you know, the first thought that most—that's the biggest one of the biggest things you have with is shock. If they go into shock, you can lose them. Right. And and you want to keep them out of shock, and they can go into shock even if they're if they're doped up on morphine. So you don't want them so doped up that you can't monitor shock. At least that's my that was my philosophy. Sure. And I had I had learned that from an old special forces medic when I was going through training.
4: Oh, is
1: that right?
2: It it may be anecdotal. Right. It may be somebody could maybe challenge me on that technically. Okay. But that was my philosophy and that's the way I was going to operate.
1: That's the way it worked in the field and you brought people back alive.
2: And it and it worked on that operation. Wow. I never gave nobody was so uh because when we were carrying those Two guys that were really couldn't walk at all, sure. You could hear them when we bump them or something. Oh, yeah, so I knew that's this sounds terrible. <laughs> as, as long as I heard them open or ouch or ah, ooh, I knew they were alive, they're still with us. They were still with us, <laughs> and, you know. I mean, that's that's somewhat of a, I mean. You, I learned that not from school, but I learned it from other medics, older medics, that, I, that had been around for a while. You know, Evens sure. and Eights that had, you know, because even though I would graduate from Special Forces, had been in Thailand, I still work with medics that were had more experience than I do.
1: Combat experience.
2: Combat experience, and you listen to them because the last thing you want to do is you want to further injure somebody that's already. In a tight spot,
1: hurting for certain.
2: Yeah, and especially in a situation where it's not like you can call nine one one and an ambulance is going to show up, because you don't know. In our, in my situation, after the first day, I don't. We never really attempted to medevac the wounded because the, that second day, we're trying to evacuate them, proved to be a disaster. So we w- we didn't want to put another helicopter in danger. We didn't want to put more crew in danger. In. Right. And plus the fact, to medevac that many wounded at that point, uh, you've got to have more assets uh, than in the air.
1: And they are having trouble with the weather even that day.
2: Yeah, so sure. it's, it's just, it wasn't just, I mean, you, you got to think beyond, you, sometimes you have to make hard decisions. Fortunately for me, I'm not the one making this. I, ne- I never made the decision about no more Metabax. That right. was not my purview. That was, but it. But in hindsight, it was the right decision. It was, it was, it was common sense. Sure. I mean, I don't. I don't want to see Brown or Pageant hurt or that crew hurt. Right. Like they almost did anyway.
1: Yeah, and so this. So and that rescue was on the third day. And so now day four, so the every the teams inserted September 11th. We go through the 12th, the 13th, day and night combat, moving, always combat. During the night, they even used tactical air at night. We had uh, Spectres, yep. uh, Sting, and then um, other gunships that provided cover so that Captain McCarley or his combo man could direct airstrikes on the enemy as they're attacking your positions at night while you're on the move meanwhile you and Cooch are taking care of the wounded as you move and well,
2: uh, I could tell you this much yeah anything you tell me about McCarley <laughs> I don't know firsthand
3: because yeah
1: you're I saw, busy
2: I, I saw McCarley uh, and here, here's the great thing about how great a commander he was if I can please decide oh yeah Even with all the stuff he was doing, he wasn't eating, he wasn't sleeping, and he was drinking whatever that water we could fetch out of the places we were dipping in the teens. He would would come by, not all the time, but periodically, a couple, three times maybe, I don't know. I can't remember. Yeah. It could have been one. It could have been five. I don't know.
1: But the fact of the matter is you're he dealing with the uh, troops, and he's, he's fighting this whole thing. He comes to you.
2: He comes to me, and he has, He has asked me how I'm doing. He wasn't asking how Sergeant Rose, the medic, was doing. He was asking how Mike Rose was
1: doing. Yeah. The man on the ground.
2: And I know, talking to other people, that he was doing that with the other guys. Yeah. And that included the mountain yards too. Yeah, you know, you couldn't maybe you couldn't talk to him, but you could he could walk by and you know pat him on the shoulder. Or, he
1: had a couple of words in yardese that he could lay on him.
2: Yeah, and uh, and the same thing with Morris Adair.
1: Oh uh, yeah, our, the first yeah. sergeant.
2: The first sergeant. <laughs> I it would be remiss in not mentioning him. No. Same attitude. He w- he was walking around, doing his first sergeant stuff, you know, like making sure distribution of ammo or whatever. But he would come by and he would (laughs) chit-chat. Like, we were in Central Park. Yeah. I mean, he didn't stop me from doing what I was doing, but he would just chit-chat. And I know what he was doing. He was just there. He knew, I knew he had my back. Indeed. You know?
1: Absolutely. And they all knew, all the men, that, talked to later, Also, said they knew what you were doing, which was keep patching them up as well as the indigenous troops who by that time we had over 50 casualties that you and Cooch are looking after, maintaining, helping, as well as moving at the same time.
2: Oh, I can tell you, the things I, we were Cooch and I were doing <laughs> were probably violating every... <laughs> sanitary medical procedure that I'd <laughs> ever been taught
3: <talking>, in uh,
2: But. But at that point in time, you know, it's like, it's, it, it, you, you and, and then plus, by day four, we were, ru- we were out of stuff. Right. If, I thank God that nobody really got really badly hurt on the fourth day. Yeah. Because I didn't have any morphine left. I mean. Because one of the things that I did with all the Americans, everybody's left front pocket belonged to me.
1: Right. Because?
2: I made sure they had extra morphine in there, a bandage in there, and I made everyone in the rucksack carry the big belly bandages. Sure, yeah. And everybody carry an IV bottle. And,
1: and that helps sustain you through those four days so on the ground.
2: I would go and pull that stuff from them or Cooch would go and get it. You know? Sure. And because I couldn't carry all that stuff. Cooch couldn't carry all that stuff. And the guys didn't have any problems with carrying that stuff. Right. Because they, if they went down, they knew. That they would need it.
1: That
2: would
1: be needed. <laughs> yeah. So let us turn to day four because, um, and it's funny because, again, the troops on the ground, Captain McCarley and the men, his, his command element didn't have a accurate weather picture yet. But they started in the morning, and then they hit another command headquarters. They go in, seize more documents. There's combat there, and um, i trying to think. In, ad- in addition to intelligence documents, papers, code books, transportation logs, records, North Vietnamese currency, and photographs, including a photograph of Ho Chi Minh, who had been the head of the communists in North Vietnam, who died in 1968, but again, they got this, another intel coup, the guys had to pack this stuff and carry it in addition to everything else while engaged in the enemy. On this occasion, they again used the, uh, as they wired the the area, the weapons and the cache site with the, again, rice, weapons, enemy supplies, ignited as they pulled out, continuing to move, and when it explodes, then the air force came back, using that as a marker to to completely destroy all the enemy supplies, the cache, which were significant numbers.
2: You know what really amazes me is uh, dried rice. <laughs> you don't think about it, but it'll burn pretty good. Pretty good. If you get it, it ignited, <laughs> like throw a you know if you have a cache of rice, you throw a thermite grenade in there, or. Put a little gasoline in there. Yeah. It'll, it'll, I don't know if it'll completely destroy it, but it'll make it unusual. You can't eat it. Right. That's, then that's all you're interested
1: in. A little name pop can go a long way with rice. Yep. So,
2: uh, (laughs) but, you know, well, you know, if you, if you, on rice, if you're cooking rice at the house and you forget about it on the stove and the water all boils out, it'll start to burn. Right. You can imagine what you know. Really thoroughly dried rice that's never been in water do. It's it's like any other uh, dried uh, piece of vegetation will burn. I mean that's uh, that's a big uh, challenge with uh, wheat silos in the United States is if you're not careful with that you can, they can be launched into outer space.
1: <laughs> that's right. There have been some horrific casualties explosions because of that
2: yeah so you never know well rice flour you know or or wheat flour is very dangerous because it'll it burns so quick it's almost like an explosion
1: right and so getting back to day four uh finally gene was told about the weather and the air assets started to come out joe driscoll was there with scarface and they came out the give of support. And then later, uh, we had Tom Stump, who was a pilot with an A-1 Sky Raider. And Joe, and they thought there was over a 1,000 NVA Pathet-Lal troops who were moving towards Company B in the morning. Now, Gene didn't know the numbers were that big, but they knew the enemy was coming. They told him. And Joe Driscoll, Looked in and he said during that final briefing it was very clear today was do or die. The big thing was the stark seriousness of the moment. Everyone knew they had suffered heavy casualties, as you knew firsthand, and now the weather was closing in on them. The A one Sky Raider pilot Tom Stump had added the weather was dog shit. When we took off, I wasn't optimistic about getting them out of there. And that's what you all were up against on the ground on day four.
2: I was later told that I don't know who Tom was talking to over the radio.
1: Eventually, well,
2: we... Black said to somebody, and I don't know who he was talking to over the radio. Yeah. If we don't get him out now, we're not getting him out.
1: And he played a key role in protecting you all, because at one point the NVA were coming up with some wave attacks. Covey had left. But Gene McCarley was able to talk to Tom Stump who found a way through the clouds and then made several gun runs that broke the back on I one was of those attacks.
0: told, like
2: I, I said this morning at the yeah. podcast, that they, they, the A1E pilots were told not to fly under 500 feet. And I don't know if that was a standard order or whatever. But later on I found out it was Tom Stump. But <laughs> he made a pass over us. And uh, the way the This is why for years I thought Tom was taking hits. And what it was was the rounds come up and the prop wash pushes the rounds back up, the the spent cartridge.
1: Yes, indeed.
2: So what I was seeing was the shadowing of those 50 caliber rounds along his fuselage. But when he turned and looked down, I couldn't read it, but I could see that there was lettering on his helmet. That's how low he was. Really? And... What scared the crap out of me, because at first I thought he was strafing us, but it wasn't. You know what it was? It was the expense fifty caliber, uh, and I mean, those those things were going everywhere when they were hitting the ground. And I and I suspect they were go- how fast are they going? I don't know. But they're, what, two, three inches?
1: Like a small tube of crest.
2: Yeah. And uh, it's funny now, but at the time it wasn't. That Stuff was going everywhere. I mean, except it never hit a single person, got hit with one of those extant rounds. And I don't, I don't, you know what? To me, that's why I believe firmly, you know, I am a somewhat of a religious man. I'm Catholic. I go attend church and whatever on regular. But when I think back about it, there's little incidents like that that say to me, there are guardian angels, there are. There is a divine
1: intervention. Intervention
2: saying, <laughs> Yeah, these nobody's going to get hurt on this. And somehow, he, the good Lord pushed those spent rounds. Indeed. In such a way as nobody got hit. Because if you'd got one, they're hot, and two, they, they're probably what traveling, what a couple hundred miles an hour.
1: Oh, yeah. Either, particularly on a gun run. Yeah. Because they're coming down. Those birds, those warbirds, those magnificent Man, warbirds.
2: As, as low as he was, I should say. Uh,
1: well, one of our targets, we had a gun run in the Ashall where the A-1, Sky, A1 uh, Sky Raider pilot, after his gun run, he put the bird on its side to look at me. I could see him, and I could tell you he was smoking a Philly cheroot, And I saluted as he went past. That's how close they were. Yeah. It's just like what you're saying.
2: Yeah, that, those A one E pilots, man, they're the crazy bunch of guys. <laughs> and then to, to keep flying through all that anti aircraft stuff and the SAMs and everything, it was just.
1: And I think that one of the keys to their success was the fact that a lot of them flew, where particularly when it came to a gun run or a napalm strike, they flew not from five thousand feet, but they were closer, much closer to the deck. Maybe violating that five hundred foot rule too, but. Uh, we aim to try to get a, a future uh, SPAD pilot, an A1 pilot, on here someday. We're working on that right now for some yeah, of our future podcasts. I've always wondered
2: if, if that low altitude, those, uh, those, um, some of those anti-aircraft uh, weapons that the NBA had, were not, were really not designed to go after, uh, and in that jungle, your, you know, your, your, uh, your quadrant in elevation, right was limited from the canopy well, that would you know where they would put those things I would suspect but I don't really think that they had um, were really designed or, or, or operating to go after aircraft that low and I understand uh, talking to other people one of the reasons we didn't lose more Huey's was because uh, a lot of the NBA didn't lead the Huey far enough you know, they would aim at the. Right at it. And by the time the rounds got there, the Huey was already passed. So, a lot of, you know, it's like our field artillery, you know, it's, you, you don't aim at the target. You, you know, the earth moves and the art round spins to the left and and the, the round and the target collide. So. Oh, yeah. Because of the distance involved.
1: Indeed. So, on this day, uh, getting back to day four, um, The enemy kept coming. By now, they're rolling into the team. Like you said, they've located where you are. You all, your team has destroyed the enemy headquarters cache site, and you're moving forward. And at some point, the enemy's coming so heavily between the gun runs that in order to break the attack, they came in with CS gas, which is tear gas.
2: Yeah, it's the same thing. That, In fact, my understanding, CS was originally developed by the, for use by, uh, for police in riot control. Now, it's not a lethal gas. No. As long as you're not in a, like a room or something they fill it up with. But, you know, you know CO2 could do the same thing. But uh, but I will tell you something. CS is the only cure I know for a common cold or sinus infection. Get out. That'll work for Because I'll tell you what, you get that stuff up in your sinuses... Uh-huh. Uh huh. If you have a bacterial infection or a viral infection, there those little guys are climbing over each other to get out of your nose. That <laughs> stuff. You, you, your eyes, you can't get your eyes open. You're, you're, you feel like you can't right. breathe. Yeah. Uh, your 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 nose begins to run at a massive amount. It's very unpleasant.
1: Oh God. Well, you know, like Gene McCarley said. One of the reasons why he called in the CS was because they were desperate. The hordes, the NVA hordes were coming to the team and they hit it with C with the CS. And that made it possible for the helicopters to eventually land. And Gene had that quote. said, so we had a lot of our guys crying and choking on that CS, but it also brought them critical time. And so then Scarface... The Cobras made gun runs, and the CH-53, the first one, came in for the first troop pickup. They pick up one-third of the force. They and leave.
2: We got the wounded out on the first one. Yeah. Plus the, yard, I will say, the mountain yards. I don't know if you want to use the word panic. Or, they, <laughs> it's going to get out
1: of there. They were ready to go home. Well, you
2: know, the thing
1: <laughs> is, with it, it, as many
2: that got on that first helicopter, when you think in hindsight, I'm, I'm surprised it got off the ground. No kidding. I mean, it was overloaded. Yeah. Now, the second one wasn't as overloaded, but it... Uh,
1: and the second one, as it comes in, there's an increase, it has more gunfire on it, enemy gunfire, than the first one.
2: And after they, the second one picked up, they only left about 35 of us on the ground.
1: Right. 35 out of the original 130, what, you went in 133? We subtracted so the first three. The two
2: helicopters picked up pretty close to 100 people. Wow, and I I'm really surprised that they in that you know uh, helicopters are not known for flying very well in hot weather. <laughs> they love the Arctic, from what I understand.
1: But, Indeed.
2: Uh, but and then we were taking a lot of fire, and then of course we we're on the line, and we were st- started taking more wounded. <clears throat> Excuse
4: me.
1: That's okay. Yeah. So so now. We're down to the third helicopter. Again, Scarface, the Cobras did the gun runs. And then the third CH-53 Delta Marine Corps helicopter comes in to pick up more troops. And um, so you all are getting on the helicopter. Um, Pensky's flying. Yes, yes, indeed. And uh, so it's on a final approach. And they knew that they were good, That this was a last chance to get you all out. And um, Sergeant Mike Hagen, who was one of the team members, said, I can tell you that big bird was a welcome sight to us. We were all beat, we were all wounded, and we were all ready to go home. Believe me. <laughs> and Mike was on that. You, Mike, and a few others were the last, and Gene were the last ones to get on that helicopter.
2: I got... Um- I got on and Morris Adair got on and Gene McCarley was the last member of the the ground company. The Special Forces Group, Command and Control Central. Right. He was the last man to step off that
1: field. And even before he stepped off a few minutes earlier, when he was standing there with a radio operator and a Montagnard standing next to him was killed. Standing right next to him. And then, uh, um, like Gene said, it was one of those moments in time. The Montagnard was shot in the head. There was blood all over the place.
2: No, I, I'm not. I, I know. I don't. I, I picked. Di- I know. Um, I can't remember if he was killed because I remember we were. We, we didn't leave anybody on the ground. No, no. I'm not sure if he was killed or he was just. At first, one of them, there were there were two. There was one I know for sure because I gave my weapon to Pete Landon, and I went forward and grabbed a uh, guy that went down. Done, right, hitting the head, hit, and I'm dragging him back to the ship. I got him on board, and I. That remember, may have been the one then. Yeah, I think that's the one. And yeah, he was. I mean,
1: well, even his fellow Montignard told Jean. Him dead, they all thought he was dead. But you but knew. Was, but you're the medic.
2: But he was. He. I remember his whole head was just in cake. Well, you know how bad oh, your head bleeds.
1: Head wounds. And
2: imagine a a round bouncing off the, from the front of your all the way back, and it looked like the thing. But I don't know what he got hit with. But uh, the track was about a. As I remember, it looked like it was about a half an inch. Air, skin and hair and everything was missing oh wow and he was just his whole head was encased in blood so we threw him on a helicopter I but he didn't die that and I think and you know when you when you talk about that uh, I read that and I'm thinking uh, no
1: because the that's one, one point we'd never third, asked you about yeah
2: third, <laughs> the third one was killed when we went down. After the extraction. Right. And he somehow got crushed with the helicopter. So there was a third one left at the crash site. The two we left on the first, second day. Right. And that fourth one that was so badly hurt, which was the last guy. Yeah. He he made it back. He was alive. I don't know how.
1: That's amazing.
2: I don't know how well he did, made it, how well he was afterwards.
1: But you got him back and you're still breathing when you got him back.
2: Yeah, he was still breathing when we got back to uh, Doc Toe. Yeah. Um, and then, um, then there was the Marine,
1: and he. Yeah, well, let's, let's let me just let me just set the scene for a second through Tom Stump, because Tom again is in the A one, looking down. He is. It was a wild scene down there as we provided close cover to the team on the ground. Air Force F 4s attacked anti aircraft guns that the NVA had moved into the area. They, the NVA, really wanted them. They were masked to get them. They wanted to get back what the team had taken from the base camp. Covey riders told us that the NVA 12.75 Mike Mike and the 37 Mike Mike anti-aircraft weapons were opening up on us. Meanwhile, the Scarface Cobra gunships reacted to enemy gunfire on their position while Gene directed them towards the enemy troops. So things on the ground, even before you get on that helicopter, were just crazy.
2: Yeah, and, 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 and if, if you were to make a—if I made a statement and you disagreed with it, right, and you were on the ground, I can't argue with you. Yeah. Because we hadn't slept for four days. We have, I don't remember eating. I really don't remember eating. Probably did, but I don't remember. Yeah. I remember drinking a lot of nasty water. <laughs> it's like I told somebody once that, uh, you know, you drop your canteen in that water. Well, you know, the water was probably clear until the first guy walked through it. Right. You know.
1: And then clear water gets muddy quickly. then you throw
2: a handful <laughs> of uh, iodine in there, which tastes like shit. Oh, yeah. And then you're... you're you're drinking that stuff, and you're spitting stuff out, and you hope what you're spitting out isn't moving on its own, you know. Indeed. So, uh, we were drinking water. I know we were drinking water because yeah. we were fairly hydrated, but because I was checking on that kind of stuff, also, and uh, but <laughs> but you were exhausted. And, yeah. And 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 people talk about the fog of war. Sure. Yeah I remember I remember there's a an a Hollywood effect that they that I've seen in movies before like in a battle scene and I remember this one battle scene it was a, takes place between two a british ship and a pirate ship right and they're firing at each other and the sound goes dead and all you see is the effects of stuff
1: exploding up
2: and exploding but you don't hear any sound and it's like a fog. You just kind of... The
1: fog of war.
2: Yeah. And that's why I'm saying if... Am I wrong? I could be. Are you wrong? You could be. Are, but it's probably something in the middle.
1: Sure. Because you've had combat scenes where two people are fighting and looking the same way and they tell completely different stories. That just happens. And like, can we just turn to what Gene was saying yeah. at that last moment? Because Gene said, as we were backing up the ramp, up the helicopter ramp, they were coming towards us. They were coming at us hard. I'm guessing the CS guests had them confused because they were getting too close to us as me, Mike, Morris stood. But none of them threw a grenade into the chopper. I never understood why they didn't. They were that close. And they kept coming even as we lifted off the LZ while mowing down NVA soldiers. God, they just can't imagine.
2: And you know, want to hear something really silly? Yeah. I can remember that at at that point, there were only three of us on the ground. Right. There was the captain, Morris, and myself. I'm looking away from the helicopter, right? I don't remember seeing any NBA. <laughs>
3: Is that right?
2: I don't. Yeah. And I I remember uh, I remember I can't remember if it was a McCarley or it was probably Morris because he was closer to me because McCarley was behind Morris and then or and then I was in front of Morris. Right. So it probably was Morris that kind of shoved me or pushed me up the ramp. And I rem- and Bernie Bra- Bernie Bright grabbed me by the f- I remember him and sitting me down at the top of the ramp. Yeah. And I can remember Morrison and the Colonel coming up the ramp. Yeah. But if you were to ask me which one came up first, I I can't tell you. I yeah. I just remember two figures coming at me. Sure. I knew they were.
1: Well, plus they're coming into the darkness of the helicopter from the outside light.
2: So I don't know which one came up first. And, then I, and I'm sitting there, and then it's kind of like, and I'm sure we're taking
1: rounds. Well, okay, let me help you here, because in the book, Persky, the pilot, and others all said the helicopter was getting hit with rounds. And as you said, you sat down, and as the helicopter began to lift off, Marine Sergeant Stevens was bleeding profusely from a gunshot wound in the neck. And you then treated him. As the helicopter's taking off, because you explained it better to me today than we did it in the book, the round went through his neck. And then at some point, uh, <laughs> here's another thing from the, the medics that, your medic perspective that I really enjoyed of all the points was uh, you, you were trying to treat him and you could tell that he's, see, he was very lucky. I'm quoting you now, Mike. He was very lucky. The round had missed the carotid artery and the trachea, yet he was going in the shock. I rolled him over, got him on all fours, and I remember telling him, Listen, you lucky son of a bitch, if you're going to die, you'd be dead by now. I didn't use the word lucky. I I think I said... I think I said, "Listen, you
2: stupid son of a bitch!" If you were going to die you'd be dead by now. I think I used the word "stupid," but you know what? Yeah, but it worked. But it worked. He came out of shock.
1: Yes, and, he began to bounce back. And
2: and uh, and that's all I did. Yeah. I mean, and
1: I I remember. Uh, what do you do to 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 stand the bleeding from a neck wound on both that. sides? You
2: know what I was worried about. No, what. If he had hit anything, I knew if he had hit anything vital,
1: right?
4: He,
2: no, he, he he's would, gone. He would have been dead by the time he hit the ground, because you hit those carotids. Oh yeah. I mean, you bleed out probably what
3: ten seconds? Quick,
2: something like that. I was worried about his head bobbing, because if you're you can't his muscle dead, sure, was, and he probably couldn't hold his head, so. And don't ask me what I wrapped his neck in. I won't. Because I can't tell uh, <laughs> I think it, it either had to be shirt sleeves or kerchiefs or, you know,
1: that. Well, to quote Mike Rose, <laughs> then I found something to wrap around the neck to get the bleeding to stop. <laughs> That's what you did. Something. I did
0: something.
2: <laughs> I don't remember what it was. But I, I stabilized his head so it wasn't moving. And then the next thing I know, I'm sitting on the, on a beach.
1: Well, wait, wait. Because you're forgetting just a little bit more of the drama here on day four. As you're repairing Sergeant Stevens' neck, the helicopter is rising over a mountaintop and one of the engines, one of the two engines goes out. Now, you may not be aware of this because you're busy with Sergeant Stevens and the troops are there looking at the mountains you're flying over. And then um, they were well aware of the danger and, of course, The the uh, pilot, uh, I guess it would be Lieutenant Persky. He said that bridge line was sheer granite, and he was scared about crashing into that granite. They finally get over one more mountain top. Now you tell me.
2: Yeah, (laughs) I didn't need to know that. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) something. It's in the book. Yeah,
1: I know. Oh, indeed. But I'm going. Oh crap. Yeah. And so the second engine goes out, and after that,
2: never read the book.
1: That's right. Well, I put pictures in it. Yeah. <laughs> and it, so the, as they got over the second granite ridge line, it had flown over. Now the big warbird was struggling. There were hydraulic fluids and blood everywhere inside the helicopter, according to Rose. And the tail was lower than it should be. We could tell something was wrong, really wrong. We just didn't know how wrong. <laughs> and so the second engine goes out. And then uh, there's that moment in time where he's descending. He's into auto-rotation. Auto-rotation is when the helicopter to wait and he in the air moves the propeller enough so that they don't crash, but it's definitely going down with the controlled descent to his extent. And um, he, he put out a call, Mayday, Mayday, and he said, normally people would come back and say, hey, you can see an LZ or you'd go here. There was complete radio silence so he looked for an area as he's descending, and it's an area that he never trained in. Training with a CH 53 Delta, with loaded with troops, intelligence information, bleeding Marines, and they're all rotating in. And so it lands, so finally it has a very harsh landing.
2: And there's a problem? <laughs>
1: Uh, yeah, Mike, we had just a little issue here. Yeah. <laughs> the two yeah. engines are out. You're yeah, auto-rotating. The, the inboard mechanic should have solved that, right? Yeah, should have fixed it. Was he slacking? <laughs> yeah,
2: it taking an uh, But let me, that, you know, here's another perspective on that scenario. It, oh, please. Um, when I got up and, and Bernie sat me down, right, we had, uh, we were lifting up. And he was struggling, because uh, he lost one engine coming in, and, and, uh, and there was hydraulic fluid. Stuff was, was obviously, because there was water, or well, I probably thought it was water, I don't know what it was, all over the floor. And the, I remember the tail going like this. Up really? Down. And I could see green, and then blue, and then green. And I don't know which one of us said this. And Bernie and I, Bright and I to this day can't tell you. One of us said, we're going to crash. And the other one said, yeah, I know. And we were arm in arm, figuring, <laughs> bend over and yeah. kiss you know what. Goodbye. goodbye. <laughs> and that's when I got tapped on the shoulder. Now, you got to—you can't believe this. There was a Marine captain. No. Starch fatigues. Oh. Spit
1: shine boots. No.
2: Looked like he was getting ready to take a photo op for a Marine Corps recruiting
1: poster. Indeed.
2: <laughs> and he said I got a wound in the back. So I got up and went back there. Yeah. And I remember that cap. That's one thing that stuck in my head. And it's like, you know, we all look like shit.
1: Yeah, you're sweaty, bloody, uh, you CS know, reeking.
2: And, he, and he, no offense to officers and colonels, but, you know, if any colonel had seen any of us, we would have been court-martialed for our lack of <laughs> military <laughs> of equipment and
3: dress, right? Oh. But,
2: I mean, it was—the funny things just stick in your head. I, and I remember him—I can't remember his face or what his name is, but I remember him. And what he was doing was he had a headset on, and he was controlling or talking to the pilot— about what was going on, on the ground from what he could see from the tailgate.
4: Yeah, sure. When the,
2: he had already, you know, normally when a helicopter comes down, uh, then they drop the ramp. But when he was coming down, he had already fully dropped the ramp. Really? Right. Huh. Because I don't think there would have been time to hit the ground and drop the ramp. Because as soon as those and I and I got to believe, I have to believe that the first two pilots that came down also had dropped the ramp, and I don't know if that's according to Hoyle or what. But there was no, there was literally no time. I think because when you see those ramps come down, two
1: o'clock. Yeah.
2: uh, The ramp comes down like this. Right. You got to stand there and wait. (laughs)
1: <laughs> but and that I day,
2: I don't think they wanted us to wait. They were trying to get us out, so they dropped. So he, I think that Marine captain was controlling, or talked, or keeping. He was the eyes and the ears of the pilot, focusing back, right, looking at what's going on. Well, also, and he was probably was waiting for us to get up, and then say, okay, pull the ramp up. But guess what? The ramp never came
1: up. No hydraulics.
2: No hydraulics.
1: And, you know, uh, Lieutenant Colonel, Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Mel Swanson observed your warp, that helicopter descending into the canyon. And this was his impression. It was a kind of a depression he headed towards. The helicopter was trailing smoke. It was ugly, real ugly. I worried that it might explode in midair or worse, hit one of those granite mountains in the jungle. From my seat in the old trusty A-1 Sky Raider, I couldn't see any Z, LZ, or any area that was open large enough for those Marines to land that big bird without crashing. And by now, I had heard they were auto-rotating with a chopper full of troops. It didn't look good. So what happens next? It lands, and what happened to you? And yeah, we'll take a break. We'll come back with that. Yes, sir. Go. No, no. Thanks I for mean, telling me. I got
2: a. I'm a. Uh, you know, ever since that, radiation stuff in the book is wrong. No,
1: just, different perspective. It's a
2: different perspective. Absolutely. If you're not wrong. Yeah. What you are is you've you've written it based on the perspective of which you. Yeah,
1: have and been told. and I never told you what Gene said until you read it in the book, and you go, hey, what happened here? <laughs> if you want one of these two to help you.
2: Uh, I mean, <clears throat> so that I, I mean that's why my digression is. It's just a little side note on what was happening at the time. A little. I know it's not exactly an answer to what you asked. Sure. But what I was trying to do is, because you said you
4: were interested in.
1: Yes, that's why we're right here. That's I mean, right. It's
2: not. And can can you under, can you see now when I say, I've learned ninety eight percent or of what <laughs> went on. Yeah. Since ninety eight. Sure. I mean. Talk,
1: well. See, what I want to do is it go into the crash and then come back, and that you earned the DSC off of that. And then, uh, the uh, what 32 Purple Hearts are awarded to the 16 SF men, including you. I
2: think it's 24 to the SF and a nine for the air crews, I think.
1: Okay, well, so it, it, total, total
2: of 36 Purple Hearts. There we go. But
1: and then from I, there, what I'll do is just say, okay, after that. He came back. You had a party. Everybody had a good time? You got your DSC there.
2: I, I wasn't at the party because I beat feet for
1: Bangkok. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, go back. Was Lonnie still over there?
2: No, he was gone.
1: Okay, so um, we'll pick it up right at the crash and then deal with that. Talk about Gene with watching Morris and then we'll wrap it and then go into, well, how it all to start your career in the Army. That way we get some of your history in and then we'll say, now, 30 years later, and deal with that, that, that distortion a little bit as far as you want to go on it. And then anything else you want to add, then we'll, we're done. Okay. Okay? So.
2: I hope I'm not. Uh, I'm trying to answer your questions and tell you. Uh,
1: we got a, we've got an observer here. Great. Jonathan, how's he doing? Great You're doing great. great so I mean, I, don't I, be hard on yourself. I don't.
2: I, you know, I'm really trying to think back.
1: You are? I can smell the wood burning. You're doing good. (laughs) This is your story, and
2: uh, what I'm I'm trying to say to you is, is, uh, you know, somebody said, "Well, that's not true." Well, it's my truth.
1: Indeed, that's your story, and we're sticking.
2: I understand it, and I remember it. Now, how I how it actually, and you know what? I'll bet you if you if you were videotaping this whole four days, I bet you a lot of stuff in there. If you had videotape and and, Sound would be changed because <clears throat> you're telling, you know, you're, you know, somebody fires a machine gun at you and the guy says, "Watch the machine gun? And you go, what machine gun? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that was an actual conversation that Bernie and I had.
3: <laughs> no kidding.
2: <laughs> yeah. When I went out to get that guy. The first yeah. time, I come back and he says, we And Bernie says, I don't know how he missed you. Wow. And I said, "What machine?" He said, "Didn't you see that machine gun firing?" And I looked, and I said, "What machine gun?" I said, Here, see it. And Bernie's just—he said, "I'm just watching this, and it's just shit. How is he not getting hit?
1: Wow! No kidding.
2: That's what he told me later. Yeah, when sure. When we were back at Contoum, he says, "I don't—I saw that," and I said, "I don't understand how you didn't get hit." Those rounds were going all, every both sides <laughs> you, underneath you, over you, yeah. and you didn't get hit. Right. But I did notice that I was missing uh, part of my shirt
1: collar. Is that right? That may have been removed by a bullet.
2: And I don't know when.
1: Yeah. But so getting back to our helicopter, uh, sudden landing, auto rotation, um, it impacted on a side angle in Laos and— it, was a, it appeared to be a sandy beach with some water around it, but no, you brick, didn't see that. It a creek
2: or a river. Yeah, okay. I don't know. What, yeah. It wasn't but a lake.
1: When that helicopter hit with sudden impact, forceful impact, so much so that Gene's teeth were crushed.
2: Fourteen teeth right <sighs> down to the roots were gone. Oh, my God. Well, that's the count I found out later.
1: Yeah, of
4: course.
2: And, uh, but by the way, I should tell you, that Marine Corps— and I were not on the helicopter when it crashed.
1: Okay, where were we? I'll bite.
2: We were already on the ground.
1: How'd that happen?
2: Apparently, one of the pilots said he saw two bodies go up. You know, there's two uh, 50-gallon gun ports. Right,
4: sure. On the front.
3: Yeah.
2: If you see that picture of me with the two beers and Thomas yeah. and, and uh, Spurgeon on both sides of me. right. If you take a real good look, there's a a scab right here. Where, what is it? It's, you can see it when I. Okay. Okay. When I crank, there's a crease here.
4: Yeah, sure. You still got it.
2: Yeah. Well, (laughs) we, when that rolled, the two of us went this way. And when it went this way, apparently we're at the right angle. Mm -hmm. to go Out the door. And we were told that they don't know how many feet. Some I've heard 50 feet. I've heard 20 feet. But the two of us were thrown out of the helicopter and hit the beach.
1: Whoa. Had not been sand, you would have been dead.
2: Yeah, but whatever.
1: <laughs> yeah, whatever.
2: Then again, <laughs> when I say there's, if people don't believe, a, if you don't, if you, anybody who was on that operation, whether you're in the air or in the ground, if you don't believe in God... Yeah. You're a fool. <laughs> and I sincerely believe that because this shouldn't happen. Especially the Marine survived another 42 years. Yes. So all I remember is sitting there like with my hands back. Now this is what i now at this point in time, I'm just, I can just get little vignettes of like shadows. Sure. Like I'm sitting there and this blob is coming at me. And I don't know if it stopped 10 feet, 20 feet, 5 feet, a foot. I have no clue.
1: Right, because your vision's still off. I'm off. Yeah. Yeah.
2: My bell has been rung.
1: (laughs) Big time. So I get
2: up, and I turn and look at the helicopter. Now, how the hell McCarley got out of
1: that helicopter,
2: I don't know. I'm not sure how—Morris has taken a bath in the river—
1: Right, we'll get to that in a second.
2: <laughs> I walked up to McCarley, and I looked at him and said, we we got to get back. This is what McCarley's telling me I told yeah. him. I don't remember doing this. No kidding. But McCarley tells me yeah. that I walked up to him, and he says, I said, we got to get back on that helicopter. There's guys on there. Right. So he <laughs> later he said, yeah.
1: He did say that too, sure.
2: And, and, I mean, he, he told me later, he said, you know, when I think about it now, it was really not one of the brightest decisions I made to follow you on <laughs> like that burning
1: helicopter. Burning helicopter at that.
2: Yeah. So we start, and the reason I know that helicopter was tipsy-turvy, mm-hmm. because all the people were at the bottom, and there was equipment piled.
1: On top Bernie of them. bright
2: was buried up to his waist sacks and rifles, and, right? You know, stuff from the aircraft.
1: All the intel reports you brought back and photos and yeah. stuff, yeah.
2: And the only thing sticking out of that mess was his feet. No. Yeah, and he's kicking like crazy. <laughs> I can remember that. So we start throwing stuff. Now, Planchet crawled out somehow. Right. We, I don't. He doesn't remember how he got out. I don't remember him. I don't even know he's there in the in the the hole. We know it wasn't the door. Right. It was a hole in the side of the aircraft. Wow, no kidding. It had to be. Yeah. Because of the way the helicopter was sitting on the ground.
1: It was cockeyed. Yeah. Big time.
2: So I'm throwing stuff out, and every time I throw stuff up, I'm hitting him in the head. <laughs> we, passed, we We started passing anybody that was in there out. just. And as they got on the ground, they kind of shook, you know, come over, help, help, help. Yeah. So we're pulling. And then I remember going forward and helping the pilots out of the out of the...
1: Um, the pilot's com- the pilots compartment. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, I remember going forward that far, and I remember being with the pilots, but I can't remember if I helped them out or if... Go ahead, keep going. We got them going, right? Or they got out... Excuse me. Or they got out on their own. But one of them, or both of them, used their infantry... Motor- To try to create a perimeter, which a lot of good that would have done. We figured we (laughs) had about 20 rounds left between
4: them, all of
2: us. Not to mention, rifles had been really stirred up. Sure. Hand guards were missing. They were broken and everything else.
1: On impact.
2: Yeah. So the next thing I know is there's a helicopter. Now, this is what I remember. Sure. I'm on the helicopter. I don't remember getting off. I don't remember getting the ground. I remember somebody saying, "Everybody's clear," or "empty," or, the, right. or something, indicating yeah. to me that there was nobody <laughs> left in. We weren't going back in for any equipment. Uh, then the next thing I know is a helicopter backs the kind of backs into the beach, and everybody we shuffle them onto. Yeah,
1: another helicopter came in as flying. Them, yeah, yeah.
2: And, you know, if that third one had gone down in that LZ, it would have been over with. Oh, yeah. So No question. So we shuffled people in, and we get the ride back to Kantum. I guess. Yeah. I remember looking at the helicopter landing, and the next thing I really clearly remember is standing at our launch point there at Docto. Mm Mm-hmm. And then to really finish off the day, we started taking— uh, mortar and artillery fire from that NBA
1: right. mountain up there. Where they they fired every day on Docto. Yeah, yeah. And and the launch site.
2: Standing there like an idiot, <laughs> watching a Cobra, fully armed Cobra, getting hit and blowing up. It's like, and then
1: welcome <laughs> home.
2: Yeah. So, and the guys were jumping into this. We had. It's I don't know how that happened. I remember the guys were in the
3: uh, bunker. Yeah.
2: We had to help them out. There were so many of them in there, they couldn't get out by themselves. Well, You know, it's like... Yeah. You know, 12 men squeezed sure. into a six-man box <laughs> kind of deal. And I remember passing out, kind of. Yeah. Because they tell me I did. And the next thing I know, I'm sh- almost shirtless because I was so soaked in blood.
1: They thought you were well, bleeding.
2: I was thought I was bleeding, so they were checking me out, but I wasn't. Surprisingly, I had a lot of dings in me, but nothing really what I, was, what I would consider life-threatening or critical. Yeah. And the next thing I know, the next thing I remember, is I'm on a helicopter with a mountain yard and Marsa Dare heading back to Contoon. I don't remember that Huey. I don't remember getting on that Huey. And the first sergeant, Morris Dare tells me, he, he said, I looked right at him and he said, if this damn thing crashes, I'm walking back. <laughs> you know?
1: Yeah. After what you've all been through. <laughs>
2: and, uh, I get, the rest of the afternoon is a complete blur. I remember going to take a shower and this, in the, Probably the reason I remember, because, and I remember I kept, I was so filthy and full of, covered in hydraulic
3: fluid and whatever. Right, right.
2: I couldn't get the soap to soap up. You know, it just wouldn't lather.
4: Yeah,
3: yeah.
2: I think I went through a whole bottle of, bar of soap before I finally got clean, or what I perceived. Sure. And I had taken, apparently I had taken my uniform and walked to the shower with the towels on over, with Uh, around my waist with shower shoes, taking the shower, and I had thrown my uniform that I had on out in front of my door. And I get back from the shower and I couldn't get anywhere near it. I had to get a stick to move the... (laughs)
4: Your uniform.
2: (laughs) I think we burned them. Yes. And, and, uh, (laughs) And then I remember getting something to eat, and then I remember going to sleep and waking up the next morning. And we had to go to uh, S-2 debriefing. Right. And then I had the afternoon off, and, and I think I went back and went to sleep. And then uh, I got up the next morning, went back to the dispensary, and started holding sick call like did every other day. I went.
1: Wow. So that is your end to Operation Tailwind, which was historic in nature. And so how did all this begin with your Army career? At a nineteen-year-old, you went in.
2: Yeah, uh, I was in a North Hollywood, California draft board, and they were, it was an old area. They weren't—they were, they were really not giving out too many deferments. So I was about to be drafted. So uh, I talked to my father, and he said, "You know, based on my experience in World War II, being in the Marine Corps," he said, "1942, you went in." He said. You know if you're going to join the Marine Corps, that's one thing, but I don't recommend you being a draftee in the Marine Corps. okay. the Navy's a great service, don't get me wrong, but I don't not really thrilled about saltwater.
1: <laughs> yeah, you me both <laughs> not, you
2: know, And then uh, not thrilled about saltwater, and the Air Force, my God, somebody had to look. There was a waiting list to get in the Air Force, I mean, enlisted-wise, right? I don't know about pilots, but to be an enlisted man in the Air Force during that time frame, this now we're talking 1967, there was a waiting list along, I mean, a couple of years or something. The Coast Guard was even worse. It was like somebody said it was a five-year waiting list at that point. <laughs> Because people were joining them to thinking they're going to avoid Vietnam. A little, you know, uh, 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 little did they know. little did they know. Like a lot how these guys that joined the National Guard found themselves in Vietnam.
3: Indeed, know. yeah.
2: <laughs> so that's how I ended up in the Army, and I, I picked the Army because it, I think it settled me first. And the way I ended up in Special Forces, when I was at AIT Infantry at Fort Gordon, Georgia, I had gone to basic training at Fort Ord, which I understand has been closed years ago. Yes. And uh, so I, uh, you know how you're in the Army, and, back, you know, I grew up, and this is the 60s. They call me out of formation and told me, you're going down to take a test. Okay. Written test. So I go down and take this written test. Well, this sergeant comes in with a green beret on, I remember, He's a recruiter at Fort Gordon for Special Forces. Yes. And uh, so he said, "We want you to take this test." Well, you know, you're a private in the army, and you just do what you're told. Sure. And they, and they, they and I, My dad said, "Do the best you can." If you know, they tell you to do something, do it the best you can. He said, "If you screw it up, okay, but don't screw it up because you didn't try." Right. So I took the test. I didn't think anything of it because I had joined for Airborne Infantry.
1: Sure, unassigned.
2: Yeah. So I at the end of AIT Infantry, I get, which I was 11, Charlie Mortars, right? I get uh, assigned to jump school, parachute school. And I go, go, at the end of parachute school, I got these orders to go to Fort Bragg. They loaded up, I think... About maybe 10 of us on a, 10 or 12 of us on a bus and bust us to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And then I get there and I have to take another series of tests, battery t- written tests. And they just come out, well, Rose, you're going to be a medic. And I said, okay. <laughs> You know, it's like. Yeah. I, you know, I don't know if they were shortage of medics. <laughs> because I never thought I had much of an aptitude for that kind of thing. Yeah. So I went and spent the next year. See,
1: I knew I couldn't be a medic. I knew my shortcomings. I couldn't do it. But you, on the other hand.
2: So I spent the next, what, year and a half? Sure. Going through Special Forces. Now it's like, you wouldn't believe the requirements now.
1: But there's still a
2: half-year course now.
1: And it's still the best medics in the world.
2: All Special Ops, whether you're Navy, Coast Guard, Air Force, go to Special Forces medical training at Fort Bragg.
1: They do.
4: Yes, sir.
2: So anyway, which is great because then you get the benefit of all the services and that medical training stuff. Sure. So anyway, I get, uh, I go through the training and I get assigned to the Seven Special Forces Group. Then...
1: Uh, a year at the 46th <laughs> company in I, Thailand? I
2: was... Yeah. You
1: survived time with uh, Sergeant Lonnie Holmes? Yes. And a few other reprobates? <laughs>
2: yep, Duke, Shaw and Weitzel. Yes, and uh, so uh, I spent a year in forty six, which I think really benefited me greatly because I, I learned a lot about dealing with uh, tropical diseases and not combat wounds. But you know, you see an axe wound that's week old; it's not been treated.
3: Ooh, you know?
1: that smells good too.
2: Oh yes, terribly. Uh. Uh, you, 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 you. I learned a lot about pediatrics.
1: Uh, Which is critical to any Green Beret medic,
2: and uh, because they people used to bring you children all the
1: time. All the time.
2: And then I went to Vietnam to MACSAO, and and we held my duty. I was in the dispensary every morning, seven days a week, holding sick call. You know what really amazes me? There were about three or four of us, and we'd we'd have we'd see three hundred people between about seven in the morning and. On eleven and twelve at noon. No kidding. Oh yeah, you you got a production. Yeah, them. our
1: sick call wasn't that big because <laughs> they were bring some well, of their family I mean,
2: in. We were right next to Contum, and there was a yeah. big, and we were seeing primarily we weren't seeing troops. No. We saw mostly children and women. Uh, or children, you
4: know, sure. You know,
2: yeah. That's what we were treating for the most. Domestic
1: stuff that was people. local, yeah. indigenous.
2: And a lot of it was like, oh, I don't know, you know, rashes and pneumonias and whatever. And I think what happened is, you know, they bring their kids in and they get better really quick. So that word gets out. So the next, you know, today you got 10.
1: Go see Boxy.
2: Yeah, the next day you got 20 and then the next, you know. Yeah, yeah. And Khantum, relatively speaking to Vietnam, the, uh, the next biggest anything was Pleiku, which was about down 14, up 14. Yeah. Up 14. Clicks. Yeah, 14, no, I mean Highway 14. Oh,
1: Highway 14, I'm sorry, yes.
2: I think it was Highway 14. And I don't know.
1: I much. was never there at Contou.
2: I, I don't know, well, FOB 2. be too. There was carbon or big rock there. <laughs> and uh, I wonder if it's still there for, I don't know. But anyway... Um, You saw a lot of that, and then you went to the field, and you came back, and, uh, but you saw a lot of, and then, of course, we did the, you know, the local houses.
1: Yes, of course.
2: We, we, (laughs) you know.
1: Yes, we used a lot of penicillin.
2: Yes, exactly. (laughs) Uh, You know, it was amazing on a lot of these uh, people that were. You know, you could use like penicillins on an American, right? And it would—you'd struggle to get that whatever it was because they've had so much penicillins. But these, a lot of the the locals, they'd never had antibiotics, right? And they'd get something, and you give them a shot, man. You could almost, you know, the next day you'd see <laughs> a noticeable improvement.
1: <laughs> Indeed, well, look, uh, because of our time factor here, um, um, I wanted to uh, just mention briefly and not even focus on it. Just to say that 28 years later, the Communist News Network, also known as CNN, came out and they did a fictitious story on Tailwind Tailwind that was slanderous, it was error-ridden, and it was a complete insult to every man that was on it.
2: I think it was a complete insult to anybody that has served in the U.S. military since April 19, 1775. Indeed. Uh, it was it was disgusting. Uh, you know, it's kind of like they should, well, one of the reporters said, well, I saw the launchers, so we know they use poison gas. And I, my response was, well, you know, one, we had 155 millimeter howitzers and eight inch howitzers of Vietnam. Both of those Weapon systems have a nuclear round, but that doesn't mean we had a nuclear round in Vietnam.
1: Yeah. And so the fact that we use CS, they turned that around also to make they it, it... into a, GB. Right.
2: Well, you know, like I said earlier, CS is not a pleasant thing to be around. It's, it's But
1: it worked on that day, and it helped save your bacon.
2: Right. And maybe, um, you know, it saved our bacon, but, you know maybe in a way how many how many um, how many north vietnamese troops got so overcome by the gas that weren't
1: yeah they're disoriented enough to, that they could not open fire or throw a hand grenade into the ch-53 you guys are bored
2: as far to toward us that maybe they didn't get end up getting hurt from the aircraft that was dropping stuff you know there's a lot of things you can think about
1: or carry this sure so the Communist News Network did this piece. Time Magazine repeated the yeah, error rating. They used
2: my fat little face all over the world as the Peter Arnett. And I, there, there used to be a, a, a New Zealander. I think he's passed away now. Mm-hmm. He was in U.S. Army. Right. They come to our breakfasts here in Huntsville every month. Okay. And he said, the only thing about... When he left New Zealand, we were so glad that he left New Zealand because he wasn't, even the New Zealanders didn't like Arnett.
1: <laughs> so that is case, there was litigation, yeah. there were suits filed. Um,
2: a lot of people got fired and a lot of people left the journalism industry, if you would.
1: Indeed. and But more importantly, what I want to move on to was how your life has been impacted ever since October 23rd. 2017, when at the White House, President Donald J. Trump presented you, sir, with the Medal of Honor for your actions during that mission.
2: Uh, the first year was bizarre. I mean, it was like, I mean, the phone calls, the letters, you know.
1: I can't imagine.
2: And the emails. Uh, starting with the second year, it kind of slowed down. Third year, it's gotten a little, quite a bit. Now, going into the fourth year, because... Did the COVID virus help
1: you a little bit? Yes.
2: Uh, I am being contacted by mainly legitimate groups. Yes. Want something. uh, They're not interested in uh, making a profit off of this. And and, and tell you a funny story. And
1: this is your Medal of Honor you pointed to. Yeah. That you received... At the White House.
2: And let me also, I'd like to say something about this medal. Please. Any one of those Americans on that operation could have been awarded this medal. It was like the 16 of us drew straws, and I got the short one. Because the actions that everybody, Boudreaux, Smith, uh, were just... Uh, McCarley, Madair, oh. Orozco—the the things that I saw these men do over the period of that four days were way way beyond what is expected of a member of the United States military. I mean, there, and and then to give credit to the air crews.
1: Uh, Absolutely, I mean, heroic,
2: heroic. I mean, day and night, flying into. Any aircraft with, in, a, in a kite, basically, is incredible. <laughs> so uh, the courage that was displayed uh, the, the Marine Corps, the Air Force, and the Army, there is nothing but pride and uh, greatness of all the men involved. And I also want to thank, you know, not just the air crews, but those, those guys, when those that were there, making sure that they could refuel and reload the ammunition on those aircrafts. Because my understanding that the air, Marine Corps air crews were so exhausted, right? Right. Uh, that they were cooks and clerks and everybody else, Marines, that were volunteering to fly.
1: Because they knew the shit was in the fan.
2: That they didn't care it was our, Army people.
1: Our, right. Uh, Nope,
2: but they knew that there was a bunch of Americans down there. if they don't get them out, they're not coming home. absolutely, and literally we would never we would we would be among the missing in action
1: and, yeah, and, and
2: right behind you would be my epithet
1: indeed, and the um, on that after that mission, there were how many purple hearts awarded to uh, during that day to the special forces men on the ground and
2: my understanding uh, the count that I have. I've not scientifically verified this. Right. I can tell you there were 24 Purple Hearts for the Special Forces. and my understanding, there was another 12 issued for the air crews.
1: Who were wounded in action.
2: Who were wounded. Yeah. So a total of 36. And if all of those mountain yards had been U.S. troops, Whew. uh they would have had a—the uh, Army Accounting Command would have had to put in another order for Purple Hearts. Because there, too—
3: because there was
2: not a single mountain yard on that operation that wasn't—had some kind of injury from the—
1: Yeah, and the, the other thing that you had was the uh, concern for um, how many of the indig were wounded. Out of the 120 that went out there, more than 60 were wounded—
2: the those were the ones that uh that was the number that is that needed a medics, right but if you talk about if you if you ask how many i saw i probably saw more than 60 because they'd come by and ask for a band-aid or something right <laughs> no i'm
1: sure just, yeah know, deadly serious yeah
2: like if you're you know, if you got something here and you want to pat it, so if you're left-handed or right-shouldered or whatever. Sure. So when you fire your weapon, it's not bouncing up against whatever there. And and I can tell you the bruising, the the effects of, you know, bamboo. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that with me, when I got hit so bad. Right. When I got thrown up in the air. Yeah. Was for a year, at, first year Margaret and I were married, Margaret spent, oh, she said she hates this, but she, she said, yeah, I did it. I would get, like, boils.
1: From the she, shrapnel.
2: She would either pull out a piece of metal or a piece of bamboo. It would finally fester and come
1: up. Oh, yeah. I
2: went on for a year after.
1: Oh, my God. People never think about that. And so moving to something more positive, one of your missions today with the Medal of Honor Society is education program. Let's talk just a little bit about that, so people could be aware of what your effort there and your dedication to that mission today.
2: One of the things that I, I think is so important is character development, and there's like there are three legs to this character development. And I'm not talking about self-esteem. Self-esteem is what wusses want and snowflakes want. They don't want their feelings hurt. Right. The first thing is is education. That's formal education, academics, math, science, valid history, truthful history, English literature, that helps you make you think. All the things you need to learn in school, art, music, everything else. Then there's the the peripheral education, which is somewhat from semi-formal to informal, which went through Boy Scouting or being a member of various clubs or organizations. You know, like baseball or football, learning how to, you know... Sure. Play nice with people. Play
1: by the rules.
2: Play by the rules. Uh, develop skills, eye, hand coordination, that kind of stuff. And one of the things, you've got to concentrate on yourself, we tell young people. You've got to concern yourself first. You need to count yourself first before you count anybody else.
1: And the reason why?
2: And the reason why is if you don't have that education and the skills you need, you can't help anybody else. The next thing and the next leg of that is implementing all that education you've got. That's including mentoring, you know, if you're 15 and you're an Eagle Scout, there's a lot of things you can help with the younger ones. If you're a Girl Scout, the older ones can help the younger ones. You, it's picking up trash when you walk your dog, it's because you want your neighborhood to be clean and nice. Helping the an 86-year-old neighbor, you know, get the sure. mail without... Them struggling with a walker down their sidewalk or whatever or their driveway, <laughs> implementing things, uh, organizing awards ceremonies, parties, uh, organizing uh, radio, America, you know, radio control car organizations, learning to uh, to implement all this education. And the older you get, the more you learn, the more you can help other people more and be improve your community.
1: Sure civic is, pride we don't hear about that anymore
2: yeah civic pride then the, the second the third thing rather is to be able to pass on your culture okay in the united states what do i mean by culture the constitution of the united states and what it stands for indeed that american flag symbol. yes we've had problems we've had slavery and during coral laws but what other nation in this planet has gone out of their way with each generation to make things better. Yes, we had slavery, and it, and it, by the way, the United States did not start in 1619, it started in 1776. The first year of the war, we were trying to fight for the rights of Englishmen. We were an English colonies, Nimrods. <laughs> um, and to understand the development of how we've gone through, through court actions, through peaceful means to improve things, you know, through, uh, Changing the Constitution to make things like slavery illegal to <clears throat> equal uh, the 14th Amendment.
1: All done without coup d'etats.
2: Without having a rifle involved in
1: it. Indeed.
2: And the, and we, we have, his for almost going on three centuries now, passed the leadership of the country peacefully to the next person. That Indeed. Won the election. Yes. Now you can argue the quality of the election all you want. That's And the thing is is that I think we really need to concentrate on ignoring skin color. We need to operate what Martin Luther King said. The only thing that counts and that's part of the character development and education. Not a person is the content of their character. It doesn't matter if you're six feet tall or five feet tall, if you're black, white, Asian, or whatever. If you adhere to the principles set down in the Constitution and the things set in the Declaration of Independence and our codes and our laws, and you believe in the fact that, like Voltaire has alluded to, implied, but he really never said it, was the fact that I may not agree with you, but I will defend your right to say it to the death. Indeed. And those are the things that I'm talking about, character development education. And we're, we're working here in Alabama. We've got three school systems. I'm also part of the Youth Leadership Development Program, which we've got 95 high schools. And we're using a lot of the uh, character development from the Medal of Honor Society in that program. Wow. Along with that, we've got 27 universities that are supporting our Youth Leadership Development Program. And the purpose is to educate people and by education, I mean tell them the you know you don't tear down a statue. Look at that statue and say, okay, what does that mean? What does it affect you? Does it affect you today? No, but it was a symbol once upon a time. What was that symbol? Was it a good symbol or a bad symbol? If it's a bad symbol, explain it. Yeah. Don't don't hide the swastika. You know, let's not blow up Buddhist statues because we're Christians or Buddha or Muslims. Right. Or whatever. Uh, You know, and and this thing about cultural appropriation. Oh, my God. What society has an appropriated culture? You know, this, every place in the world, you know, it's like, where did alphabets begin? (laughs) Yeah. If you look at Japan, Korea, and China, their alphabets look very similar because they all had the same roots. So is that not cultural appropriation? But it's a good... There's a lot of good, uh, if you look at the Roman Empire, they were the great cultural appropriation appropriators with roads and, bil- and and aqueducts and military equipment. You know, there's nothing wrong with using ideas from other cultures. In fact, I think that's the greatest compliment that a culture can, you can come to this country and you bring part of your culture with you and then it look people look at it and say, yeah, that's a great idea.
1: And then improve it, yes.
2: And then your culture can play. See, that's our piece of the American culture. Indeed. And it's a good piece. It's a piece that everybody, regardless of where you come from, can use <laughs> and help better their life. And that's what education's about.
1: Amen. And uh, as we close out here, Mike, any, any final thoughts, uh, particularly since... Our, first of all, what did it feel like on October twenty third, 2017 at the White House on the podium with the president awarding you our nation's highest decoration?
2: It was uh, – when I said – you know, I somewhat ignored because I'm kind of – it's kind of – it was kind of bizarre. And I don't <laughs> mean in a bad way. No. I mean, it's like you become – a—I mean, every place I went in the Pentagon and, and my face was everywhere, you know, it's like
1: – Indeed it was. How'd I get here?
2: Yeah, you walked out. <laughs> a funny story. I kept walking in the Pentagon and they just kept waving me through. I had an escort, and what I didn't know was the escort had my badge. <laughs> and so the the first day I'm in there, I have to go to the bathroom. Right. So I start walking out to go to the bathroom because I didn't know you had to take you know. Yeah. And they said, well, wait a minute, you gotta take this with it. I said, What's this? This is your badge, badge. I didn't know I had a badge. Oh, yeah, I've been carrying it for a day. <laughs>
3: so uh, that's what
2: And then the the top that out is every time I go back to the hotel, yeah. I have to get a new key. Well, after the second day, the clerk just started handing me one. Because what was happening is every time I went through security at right. the Pentagon, it was zeroing out my hotel room key. <laughs> the electronic yeah. monitor.
1: Yeah. Know. Powerful monitor. huh?
2: But I will tell you this much.
1: Yes. Mr. Trump was he?
2: Is a gentleman. He was, he introduced my wife to the nation and my grandchildren.
1: And your grandson even had a moment in the West Wing, did he not?
2: Oh, yeah. Well, he's, he's, he's either, he's either going to be hung and become president. One of the young well, he. He was standing next to the President when he was signing the the, the certificates and stuff for my medal. Right, yes, they sir. Do that in the Oval Office in, with your family. Right. So afterwards, he pats the President on the back and thumbs up. You know, and I go, "His mother is like." <laughs> you know, <and> he, <laughs> I can just see the so uh, the, the, the
1: secret. Secret service, service. yeah. yeah.
2: yeah kind of, so he walks yeah. back around me, pulls on my sleeve, and he says, "Can I get his offer? I said, "Christian, ask him. The man's sitting right there." So the president goes like this with his finger up in the air, and his secretary brings stationery. He writes an autograph for Christian. He brings him one of the MAGA hats, and he signs that. Oh, wow. And then uh, he says, uh, can I get one for my sister? So he gets one for her sister. Then Margaret says, well, can I get one? So he gets one for Margaret. And then he looks dead at the president of the United States of America in
1: the Oval Office.
2: (laughs) His mother just was...
1: Oh, cringing
2: Cringy. <laughs> and he says can I get one for Mrs. Fisk oh and the president turns around in his seat and gets his hands down and looks straight at Christian right in the eye and says who's Mrs. Fisk well that's my teacher oh <laughs> well okay uh, so he goes like this he said why and he says well I'm. can you write it Asking her to excuse me for this week, <laughs> so he did. So we, we later on, uh, yeah. Christian did a video of this uh, thing in D.C. that week, yeah. And he showed it to his class, and he, we we had it framed for Mrs. Fisk. Ah, uh. but I couldn't. In the Mr. Trump was smiling. You could tell he was smiling because he. I looked at him; he was smiling. But he's writing, "Please excuse," you know, la la la. to get Christian out of homework. And I told him later, I said, you know, if this doesn't get you out of all that work you're missing this week, nothing will.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You bought the farm on this one. Oh, yeah.
2: Uh, we're going into the White House, and, you know, we have the Secret Service in. There's no video or, you know, yeah. or anything. And I look over there with his mother and the grandmother, and there's Christian with his cell phone on the video just going. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the kid's going to get us in jail. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, we had a, it. was. It, there were funny things like that, and there were some pretty solemn moments. And, Indeed. And then um, one of the things is that, uh, my, you know, the, he, my wife was escorted into the room on the arm of the vice president. Wow. That was cool. Yeah, sure. And then I followed the president in. Well, after the ceremony was over, with, I stood back, like I was told, because we had a rehearsal. And the president's supposed to go first. And this is tradition. He, he's the last one to come in the room and the first one to leave, right? Right. He looked right at me and went like this. And I walked out ahead of the President of the United States.
1: I remember that. Wow.
2: That's, that's a tradition that he broke. And, I, I mean, that kind of thing is just astounding. The little simple acts of kindness that he's done. Yeah. And uh, he, he was very kind to my grandchildren. And, and you could tell he was enjoying
1: Well, you also had a briefing with him with all the men who were able to attend that day. Yeah. Oh, from your was, team,
2: he was supposed to stay a few minutes to take photographs. He spent a half an hour with us. Wow, and you could see that the, the yeah. studio was kind of you know, but he was having a fun time with uh, you know, and it's funny that we have a photograph of it, it looks like it was an advertisement for walkers, canes, and uh, oxygen <laughs> bottles, you know, right? <laughs> because this is a you know, he's looking at a bunch of old men,
1: sure.
4: For,
2: lot, you know, basically, physically have been broken in the service of this country.
1: Yeah, 47 years later.
2: That is not unusual for a medals honors to be awarded decade. In fact, I, it's more the norm than it is the. Right. Because yeah, what is it? Williams got his of, what, 100 and.
1: 100, how many years? 130 yeah. years later?
2: Well, Mr. Obama gave the medals to his descendants of a young man who was with the fourth. Volunteer Field Artillery Regiment uh, from uh, Rhode Island, Rhode
3: Island.
2: On, uh, and he he received his for action on July third,
1: eighteen sixty-three, in Gettysburg.
2: Well, and you know, and that's my point about this country. <laughs> we make errors, we make mistakes, but we tried to fix them. Indeed. You know, unfortunately, a lot of times it's decades after the people that were injured or ignored or not recognized sure but at least we we try and that's that sums up this country we have problems we have faults but we try on a daily basis to fix those things that aren't right or at least most of us try
1: indeed i think that's a great note to close on mike thank you for coming with us today we really appreciate it and uh We also want to say thanks to all the veterans out there, men and women like you that have served our country, who fought the wars for our country, truly an American hero, someone we look up to. To those of you out there on the front lines today, now, we thank you for fighting for all of our ideals for police, law enforcement, the border patrol, secret service, paramedics, frontline correction officers, others that are out there every day serving the better of our country and mankind here. And thank you to all that we can do this so that we can live in safety today. And of course, we thank all of our armed services. And for those who didn't come home, we salute you. Till next time. Without the ones like you who
2: work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants.